Welcome to the C-Cup podcast, brought to you by the BJA. Welcome to the June C-Cup podcast. My name is Eleanor Carter, trainee editor of C-Cup, and today I'm joined by Professor Donald Buggy, Professor of Anaesthesia in Dublin and a member of the editorial board of the British Journal of Anaesthesia. Welcome, Professor Buggy. Thank you, Eleanor. I'm particularly pleased to interview you today as the BJA and CCUP are now official publications of the College of Anaesthetists of Ireland. Is CCUP widely read by trainees and senior anaesthetists in Ireland? Most certainly, and it's, uh, it, that it predated the, and indeed was an important uh, foundation for the uh, process by which we asked uh, BJA to become uh, the, the official journal of the, of the Irish College or the College of Anaesthetists of Ireland. That's great to hear, and hopefully we'll have some Irish listeners to this podcast. In this month's C-Cup, you have co-authored two articles, both on the pharmacology of general anaesthetics, one on intravenous agents and one on inhalational agents. The articles are a fantastic revision aid for postgraduate exams and, and revalidation. But in our discussion today, I'd like to focus on some of the newer developments in the field. One thing that I find particularly interesting is that our understanding of the mechanism of action of general anaesthetics is still incomplete. How close do you think we are to a full understanding of the mechanism of action of general anaesthetics? Oh, the mechanism of, of action of anaesthesia remains elusive. Uh, it, as people will be aware, uh, we all started with the Mayer-Overton theory, uh, the idea that anaesthetic agents worked essentially through their lipid solubility uh, and that it all joined together in a unitary hypothesis. There was one single way uh, by which anaesthetics worked if only we could discover it. However, uh, when Franklin Lieb, uh, almost, in fact it is a full 30 years ago now, demonstrated that most general anaesthetics inhibit the lipid-free enzyme, the enzyme protein, firefly luciferase, um, that indicated that anaesthetics didn't just work at lipid membranes, but worked on proteins and enzymes. And so that put the cat among the pigeons and led to uh, work on proteins, which has gradually, due to molecular medicine and attributable to many other techniques, have led us down the road of looking at synapses and molecules, uh, essentially, uh, as being the, the points of action. But the main message to take away is that, no, we don't have a complete handle uh, on the mechanism of general anaesthesia. Um, and indeed, there isn't just one site or just one way in which they work. It appears that uh, diversity is, is the order of the day with them. And in particular, uh, certain, certain specific, uh, I suppose, uh, elements have been demonstrated around the mechanism of anesthesia. And they could be summarized as, number one, uh, GABA-A receptors. There's little doubt now that um, <clears throat> most uh, of our anesthetic agents, particularly our intravenous, many of our intravenous anesthetic agents work through the GABA-A receptor, which is, of course, a post-synaptic uh, receptor. Uh, and that in addition to these GABA-A receptors, there are which, which work at the synapse, the neuromuscular transmission being inhibited, there are also extrasynaptic GABA-A receptors. And these extrasynaptic receptors uh, help to explain a sort of a tonic discharge uh, that um, when inhibited uh, sort of add to the effect of inhibition throughout the central nervous system. Uh, and then there is 
mounting evidence of other uh, ways in which anaesthetics can work in addition to synapses. Yes, and I was interested to read that as well as the research on uh, the receptor and synaptic action of general anaesthetics, there is also research being conducted using whole brain studies of, of neuronal networks. Do you think we'll reach a point of fuller understanding of anaesthetic action from the receptor work or from the whole brain work? I think both would have to happen in, in tandem. As you rightly point out, in addition to uh, receptors and extrasynaptic receptors and indeed ion channels, such as uh, tandem pore uh, potassium channels, there is this concept of integrated neuronal network models of anaesthetic effects, which essentially link the effects link the effect of an anaesthetic at a particular ion channel to its, its behavioural effects. Uh, and in particular, uh, we're looking at new, or, or at least uh, research is working, is looking at neural networks involved in sleep and arousal uh, that if indeed it can be shown that these synapses, these receptors, these ion channels are in the right anatomical locations, that then it may be possible to as it were, provide more joined up thinking than is currently available to us. But at the moment, we, I suppose, cannot address mechanisms of anesthesia without thinking of receptors, stroke, ion channels, and separately almost the idea that integrated neural neuronal network models uh, may help us make more sense of it as, as time moves on. If we reach a point of more fuller understanding of the mechanism of action of general anaesthetics, do you think this could lead to almost intelligent design of anaesthetic agents such that you could almost produce an agent that approaches the, the ideal general anaesthetic agent? Yes, well, as we know, the ideal agent would do uh, unconsciousness, amnesia, analgesia, and a degree of <coughs> immobility or inhibition of spinal reflexes. And of course, we get that with our anaesthetics, but we get a whole lot of other stuff like cardiovascular and respiratory and terminal regulatory side effects or adverse effects that, that we don't want. And yes, um, if, <coughs> if indeed we discovered uh, a mechanism uh, of, of anesthesia uh, that was but that was specific, we may uh, be able to attenuate the adverse effects. There's always the possibility that we may be able to, uh, as you say, uh, instigate intelligent or specific design of our anaesthetics. It seems, however, that anaesthetics as we currently know them are pretty non-specific, pretty promiscuous agents, if that's, uh, if that, if I may be permitted to use that term, um, in the sense that they have actions at multiple receptors the key actions that produce these things that we want, like amnesia, analgesia, and unconscious, seem to be at the, the, the receptors and the ion channels that we've mentioned, so say particularly the GABA-A synaptic and extrasynaptic receptors, and these uh, potassium channels, tandem pore potassium channels. Uh, and indeed, there are other receptors like the NMDA receptor, if we're talking about ketamine. But in fact, all of these agents work at lots of other receptors as well. And of course, this explains uh, a part of their side effects. So mysteriously, it seems that, uh, that, the, that the anesthetic agents, as we currently know them, even if we do, in fact, discover a particular uh, pathway, perhaps a bunch of, of these receptors linked to a, a neuronal network uh, that, that adds up to a lot of sense in terms of explaining our observed effects of anesthetics, even if we do come up with that, it may not be possible to, to fine-tune them in a way which eliminates all the side effects that we're trained to deal with. 
Absolutely. And uh, I suppose one way of looking at it would say, well, it's an exciting field to, to work in that we still have so many unanswered questions about the, the drugs that we use every single day. Yes. Yes, indeed. So um, sort of moving on from mechanisms to some of the novel agents you've men mentioned in your papers. In, in your paper on intravenous agents, you describe some propofol and atomidate derivatives which have been designed to try and reduce some of the undesirable effects of the original agents. These haven't reached the market, so are they still being trialled? And do you realistically think that they might reach the market and displace the, the place of propofol? Well, that remains to be seen. A lot of this work stems from Rob Sneed's excellent editorial, indeed review of the subject from BJA, that's the, the main uh, full BJA in 2010, uh, where he summarized some of the newer agents that are coming through. But, but our colleagues will be aware of the difficulties and expense for, uh, for pharmacological industry in bringing new agents to the market. There is a, uh, an intense outlay on uh, demonstrating safety and efficacy, and then a given product has to, I suppose, displace the existing drugs in, in the market, which uh, are, are sort of within established practice. So the, the novel propofol derivatives and uh, atomidate derivatives that are uh, currently, that are, that are described here, uh, are indeed still uh, being addressed in terms of clinical trials. And um, th th there is no, um, uh, while, while it is possible that, uh, th that one or more of them may make it to the market, particularly the uh, atomidate derivatives, because of their promise in terms of cardiovascular stability. Uh, they, they do offer the, poss poss the possibility of a step forward on our existing default mode, which might be propofol, related propofol and, and its related compounds. But nonetheless, um, th there is no um, imminent uh, um, sort of new release of these agents that I'm aware of, uh, and it may take the, the, the pharmaceutical companies liaising with regulatory authorities and evaluating the evidence some time before they are in a position to fully evaluate the potential of, of any new product to, to go forward to the market. So I think it would be safe to say that Propofol is still going to be central to our practice for the time being. Your paper on inhalational agents also mentions a newer agent, Xenon. This has many properties of the ideal anaesthetic agent. However, manufacturing and scavenging costs are pre prohibitive and it is a scarce natural resource. Do you foresee any clinical applications where it might become more widely used in the future? Okay, well, um, again, uh, some countries, particularly in, in, in Russia and in certain parts of Europe, have been undertaking clinical trials with xenon uh, and, and to good effect. It, it really does, as you say, uh, appear to have many of the properties of the ideal anaesthetic agent, particularly in terms of its uh, rapid onset and offset, but also in terms of its um, cardiovascular stability, uh, which may be of particular relevance, for example, for my own unit here um, in, in Dublin is the National Heart and Lung Transplant Centre. And um, as you can imagine, patients presenting uh, from that population are, are particularly high risk and particularly unstable. And it seems it's something we'd love to have here, to have here locally. Uh, however, um, you know, uh, cost is, is a huge issue. Uh, and will continue will be a greater issue you know moving into the future um, and I suppose it will depend upon the extent to which uh, xenon can be shown to offer clear advantages 
uh, in terms of patient outcomes uh, uh, to um, uh, in terms of clinical benefits. So I suppose I have a, a modest research program uh, ongoing myself in relation to, to xenon, but very much laboratory-based at present in, in relation to, I suppose, cancer cell biology. And one doesn't want to get distracted from the, the current subject of conversation, but if I might um, politely give a plug to the upcoming, to the upcoming BJA special issue, uh, on anesthesia and cancer, which is like an additional uh, 13th issue of the, the main journal, uh, which will actually be released in, in August, but it's specifically an online issue. So there'll be no paper coming through the mail, rather one will access it uh, via the BJA website on, online and it will be freely available uh, to, to all. Um, it's, it's an online, online issue and it will discuss up-to-date research on um, an, anesthesia and cancer, but specifically one piece of work from my own group will, I, I think, show a, a, an exciting potential benefit, admittedly in the, in the laboratory model of xenon in terms of inhibiting cancer cell, cancer cell development. Now, I realize that's a long way uh, from whether or not we should be buying in quantities of xenon despite the cost. And I think that further clinical trials are underway, actually, in Europe, sponsored by the manufacturing company Air Liquide uh, from France and other manufacturers in Eastern Europe, particularly Russia. And if quality evidence-based medicine demonstrates some of the, upholds some of the benefits which would appear in theory to to uh, to be available to Xenon, well then uh, the whole issue of cost effectiveness uh, comes back on the table and the possibilities of using Xenon in a more widespread, in a more widespread manner uh, become, become an option. Uh, however, we all know how um, products and techniques and drugs that seem very promising in laboratory or even in some clinical models uh, fail to translate into hard evidence-based medicine from structures like randomized controlled trials. So we really will have to, to watch this space. Yes, and I would just like to discuss a little more your area of research, especially with the BJA special edition coming up. You've done a lot of research on different anaesthetic agents and techniques and the effects these might have on cancer cell growth. However, it has not always been easy to translate basic science research findings into effects in the clinical environment. Would, would that be true to say? Oh, oh absolutely. We need randomised controlled trials in that area. Um, there, are, there is what might be called in a courtroom or legal setting, there is circumstantial evidence or a prima facie case, if you will, from cell culture models moving on to live animal models and even moving on to clinical retrospective studies where people go back to their, their, their experiences with one technique or another in terms, of, in terms of, of cancer outcomes. But the fact is, all of this combined does not add up to any recommendation for anyone to change their practice. So what we need and are engaged in, uh, I personally and other groups uh, worldwide, are engaged in randomized controlled trials, randomizing patients with a particular type of cancer to get, uh, if you like, a standard anesthetic technique, um, which typically is described as one which contains volatile agents and uh, opioid-based analgesia versus uh, allegedly, and I use the phrase in inverted commas, maybe a cancer-resisting anesthetic technique, if I can be indulged to use that term. Uh, and, and then we simply follow the enrolling patients is the easy bit. The, the difficulty is following patients up for five to ten years, uh, uh, you know, following them up to, to evaluate whether recurrence or metastasis 
has in fact occurred or not. And that's where the money is spent and that's where the difficulty arises. But we are struggling through it with, with increasing, with slightly, uh, slightly accelerating progress, particularly in, in the, one that, uh, the ones that I'm driving on breast and lung cancer. And um, uh, I'll come back to you in uh, five to ten years' time with, the, with, 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 with data on that. But in the meantime, whilst it's a, a, an area of interest, um, the, I suppose the message for everyone might be that um, we, we, we continue to, to give the best anaesthetic techniques that, as colleagues, we deem is appropriate for our patients. But there's no no technique is ruled in or ruled out, or no no technique or drug should be dismissed on the basis of um, my own or other people's research on the, the subject of anaesthesia in cancer, because uh, really there isn't a definitive case yet for, for altering practice for that indication at this time. That's a fascinating area of research that I could probably talk about all day, but I will move back to your papers now. Um, probably a, a sideways move in, into patient outcomes and the effect of different anaesthetic agents and also the additional effects that anaesthetics can have. The area I'm really interested in in your paper is concerning nitrous oxide. It's been a controversial area for quite some time, partly based on the results of the initial Enigma trial, which suggested worse outcomes in terms of wound infection and respiratory tract infection for those patients given nitrous oxide as part of their general anaesthetic technique. However, it, it was a trial that was criticised, particularly due to the fact that um, the groups in the trials received different oxygen concentrations during their anaesthetics. Enigma 2 has now finished recruiting. Have you heard any preliminary results yet for this trial? Yes, it's very kind. Uh, as a participating centre, I suppose um, it's reasonable to let the cat out of the bag a little bit because uh, Paul Miles, uh, who was, of course, the principal investigator on both Enigma 1 and now, more recently, Enigma 2, Paul Miles would be known to, to colleagues, uh, a wonderful research uh, and clinical colleague uh, from Melbourne, in Australia, Monash University, and he uh, literally, within the last uh, 48 hours, uh, presented a summary of, of the work uh, in, in Singapore. And uh, as you rightly summarised there, the, the, the trial was essentially evaluating uh, nitrous oxide uh, in terms of um, uh, randomising patients to receive a nitrous oxide uh, anaesthetic maintenance uh, in conjunction with an FiO2 fraction-inspired oxygen concentration of, of approximately 0.3 versus a nitrous oxide-free uh, anaesthetic, also amounting to an FiO2 or similar FiO2 of 0.3. And it, they did select out patients with a known history, uh, with known risk factors for cardiovascular disease, having major non-cardiac surgery. Um, the, the background to this is that um, anaesthetists of, of a certain age, like mine, which is not as old as some people might think, um, but my, my junior colleagues haven't let me use nitrous oxide for, for decades. Like if I want to use nitrous oxide, I have to wait till they go for tea or lunch to, to slip it on, uh, and, uh, and, and then they turn it off when, when I go out. Um, because of, I suppose, people... Um, jumping to conclusions around the kind of retrospective and laboratory data that we said a few moments ago uh, perhaps would not be an indication for change of practice in the context of anaesthesia and cancer. So patients have been, or at least colleagues have been making um, what I would call premature conclusions about nitrous oxide's potential adverse effects. And it seems that um, perhaps indeed you know, uh, attempts to switch off nitrous oxide may indeed have been premature because in this, um, you know, 7,000 study 
patient study, uh, multi multi-center international study, it would appear that the bottom line would appear to indicate that essentially the incidence of adverse cardiac events, such as myocardial infarction, morbid, uh, morbid uh, events, uh, lethal arrhythmias, or even non-lethal supraventricular arrhythmias, so all cardiac adverse events, all major organ failures, and actual death at 30 days, and a composite of all those adverse events added together, that the incidence among patients who received nitrous oxide as part of their anesthetic was in the order of 8%, 8.4%, and was almost identical, 8.1% among those who in fact had a, a nitrous oxide-free anesthetic, indicating of course no, no significant difference. And this also applied to uh, surgical site infections or surgical wound, wound healing in the state. The one thing that did come up uh, in, as far against nitrous oxide was approximately a 15, 1-5% incidence of post-op nausea and vomiting versus 11%, 1-1% incidence of PONV for those who had, uh, who had a nitrous oxide-free anesthetic, I suppose. That was well known or at least suspected for, for a long time. But again, even the nausea and vomiting uh, the PONV induced, if you will, by the nitrous oxide was very easily treated and responsive to standard uh, preventive and indeed uh, treating, treating PONV therapies. So it appears that I can actually legitimately and safely and justifiably turn the nitrous back on again. Uh, and indeed, you know, I found that it has helped to smooth over inductions of anesthetic. It helps to prevent uh, waking up laryngospasm issues in the early positioning period and maybe the early surgical period just helps people get down deeper with that second gas effect and indeed there's further research going on um, which may be worth watching out for in terms of a potential nitrous oxide effect on chronic pain that perhaps patients who get it have a perhaps related to its NMDA receptor mechanism of action may have an attenuation of their risk of getting long-term long-term pain again that's in gestation but uh, uh, a space worth watching so um, no to nitrous oxide I'd say no way keep it keep it available still if it's indicated Absolutely. So perhaps the pendulum is swinging back and we'll have to re-edit your paper. So it reads, uh, instead of time for decommissioning, time for reconsideration of nitrous oxide. Well, exactly. Um, in fact, I, I suppose time to, I, I would like to think that the paragraph was more balanced and that suggests um, you know, indicated that the, indeed the Enigma 2 was ongoing uh, and presented, I suppose, the case for prosecution in relation to it a little more clearly. So in actual fact, in the, I suppose, year or so, as you rightly say, between, uh, I suppose, finalizing the script here and, and coming to, to this point, it, it really would be better, say, uh, as, as you rightly say, time for decommissioning might well be better phrased to time to, to, to reconsider, as you rightly say. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. It's been fascinating talking to you today and discussing some of the interesting new developments covered in your articles. I would urge listeners to read the full articles. There's lots of great content and some brilliant tables summarising all the main pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties of general anaesthetic agents. And I'd just like to say thank you so much for contributing to this po podcast today. So it's goodbye from me. Thank you, Eleanor. Much appreciated. Delighted to be able to take part. Thank you for listening to the Seek Up podcast.